0: Appreciate the message this morning. Brother Tim has brought to us what a wonderful text that is. That unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That prophecy took place about 700 years before Christ came in this world, but Christ came exactly like the prophet said. Now, the book of Luke has 24 chapters in it. And if you were to start reading the book of Luke on December the 1st, you would finish the book of Luke on December the 24th, right? That's one day before the 25th, which is Christmas. Now, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all biographies of the life of Christ. And it certainly is very important that you read each one of those four Gospels uh, to get the complete picture of our Savior. You're going to read some things in one gospel. You won't read in another. Some in the gospels, sometimes two of them record a certain event. Sometimes three of them will. There's only one time that all four gospels recorded an event in the life of Christ, and that's when he fed the five thousand men, besides the women and children. That's recorded in all four gospels. That's the only one. A few are recording just one, and most of them recorded in maybe two or three. But if I had to just pick one gospel this morning to give a complete picture of the life of Christ, it would probably be the gospel of Luke. And I say that because Luke will cover some periods of the life of Christ that Matthew, Mark, and John do not. When you look in Luke chapter 2, you will find the birth of Christ, his conception and his birth. You will find where he was circumcised at the age of eight days. You'll find where he was taken into the temple according to the law of Moses, the law of God, when he was 40 days old. And then we find him at the age of 12, uh, being left behind, so to speak. When Mary and Joseph left Jerusalem to go back uh, to Nazareth, Jesus stayed behind. And I, I like to think again that they didn't forget Jesus, he just stayed behind. Uh, They didn't lose him. He lost them, so to speak. He was where he was supposed to be. And so this is some of the uh, periods of the life of Christ that Matthew, Mark, and John will not cover, but Luke does. And, of course, Luke goes on to record the ministry of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, etc. So it gives you a complete picture of the Lord uh, from the time he was conceived to the time he ascended into heaven. Now, this morning, I'd like to focus primarily on Matthew 2 and Luke 2 at some of the events and some of the things that are said about the life of Christ uh, that surround his birth, his virgin birth. Now, if you are a child of grace, child of God, and a believer uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and being the Son of God, uh, then you certainly should believe in the doctrine of the virgin birth. The doctrine of the virgin birth is essential it's fundamental, it's essential. Uh, the Bible does not actually teach us to recognize the birth of Christ, but rather we, teaches us to recognize the death of Christ. Uh, when you're baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we have communion, we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, we have unleavened bread and wine. The unleavened bread represents the body of Christ. The wine represents the blood of Christ. The separation of the bread and the wine represents the death of Christ. So the two ordinances of the church recognize the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior. Uh, of course, there could be no death if there was no birth. <laughs> there must be a life before there can be a death. So when we go back and see how Christ came in this world, let's notice why He came in this world and some of the events that surround. That surrounded the arrival of Jesus here in this world. Now, in the book of 1 Timothy 3:15, Paul says, "Great is the mystery of godliness." And the very first thing he says is, "God manifest in the flesh." Prior to this time, God was not in the flesh. We're told in John chapter four that God is a spirit, but this is the mystery of godliness, and we see a cycle. Without controversy, there could be no controversy about this. There should be no debate about this. Without controversy, great is the mystery of God. There's a mystery about this. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached on into the world, believed on by the Gentiles, and received back up into glory. Now, in one verse, we have a picture of the Lord's dissension, the Lord's life, and the Lord's ascension right here. But it begins with God manifest in the flesh. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul said, when the fullness of the time was come, that is, that time that Brother Tim was speaking about, from Isaiah 9:6 to the arrival of Christ, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. That's virgin birth, you see. Great is the mystery of Godness. God, it's God manifest in the flesh. That's virgin birth. You see, right? All right. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, not going to be sons, could be sons, potential sons, but because you are sons, he sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, whereby you cry, a Father, which means Father, Father. Now in John 1 and 14, it says, For the Word, it's spelled with a capital W, it's talking about the second person of the Godhead. Like in 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's virgin birth. The Word was what? Made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and full of truth. Now, see, these verses are pointing to his birth, his virgin birth. You don't have to just go to Luke chapter 2. These other verses are pointing us to that. Now, when we go back concerning the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this world, I think it's important that we notice a number of things. The very first one is Genesis 3 and 15. Here the Lord has Walking in the cool of the day in the garden. He's addressed Adam. He's addressed Eve. This is after the transgression. He now addresses a serpent. And he says unto the serpent, I will put enmity. Now that word enmity means great conflict and opposition. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. Between thy seed and her seed. It, her seed, shall bruise thy head. And your seed shall bruise his heels. Now what do we gather from that prophecy right there? First of all, it tells us it's about the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. Virgin birth. It's prophesying of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between her seed, her, that's your seed and her seed, not the man's seed, but her seed, you see. And then we notice... Uh, the enmity there shows the opposition, the conflict, the great warfare that would rage between the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan himself. But we see the results of it. He says, It, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall bruise thy head, and the seed of the serpent shall bruise his heels. Yes, yeah, Satan afflicted our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He opposed him at every turn. And when Christ was on Calvary... His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. That would cause bruising, I can assure you that. So he literally bruised the head, excuse me, the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can bruise your feet and get along okay with time. You can recover. But if your head is bruised, that's a picture of defeat. That's a picture of victory by the Lord Jesus Christ in defeat of Satan. So it's a very important prophecy to begin with. And we come to Genesis chapter 12, the opening verses. We find God speaking to a man by the name of Abram. Abram was living in the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. This was a land of great idolatry. But God had a child there by the name of Abram. And he spoke to Abram and told him to get out of that land and come to a land that I will show thee. And he says, And I will bless thee. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now notice, at this time, Abraham has no seed, right? He has no seed. But the Lord said, in thee and in thy seed, and Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, the word seed is in the singular and not in the plural, and then he identifies what the seed is. The seed is Jesus Christ. So the Lord is telling us here in Genesis 12 that Christ will come in this world not as a Gentile, He will come as a Jew. We come to Genesis 22. And this is a chapter where the Lord has told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac. That's mentioned three times in this chapter. Your only son Isaac. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to a number of times as God's only begotten son. Right? Isaac was a picture of Jesus in this regard. Take him to a mountain that I will show thee uh, of. And Abraham rose early in the morning... And left and went. Now we know the story. It's a wonderful story. It's a glorious story. It's one of the uh, the most complete pictures of what Christ did for us in the Old Testament. How that uh, Isaac said to the father, Abraham said, Father, uh, here's the fire and here's the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knew you had to have a lamb for an offering and there was no lamb in sight. And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now he did, he would provide a ram in the thicket and take the place of Isaac on that altar. But the Lord is telling us here something far greater than that, isn't he? God will provide himself. He'll provide and he will be the provision on top of that. Jesus would come as well as the Lamb of God. And then come to verse 18. He says, blessed art thou Abraham. He said, because in thee and in thy seed, again, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That would include Gentiles as well as Jews. In Genesis 49.10, we find where Jacob in his last days is pronouncing a uh, you know some prophecy and blessings upon his children. He's telling them some of the future events. And he comes to Judah. And he says concerning Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is an Old Testament name for Christ. What, what's, the bit, what's the purpose of this verse here? It tells us the tribe that Jesus was going to come from. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. And we come to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord speaks to David. And he says to David, he says, When thy days are fulfilled, that is, when your life comes to an end, when thy days are fulfilled, thou shalt sleep With thy fathers. He's talking about the death of David. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. He said, But from thee, he says, I will bring out of thee a seed, he says, even from thine own bowels, that I will establish his kingdom forever. Now, about two verses later, he speaks about establishing a throne forever. Then the immediate fulfillment of that is his son Solomon. But is Solomon still living? Is Solomon still reigning? Is Solomon got a throne? See, he speaks about a throne that shall be forever and a kingdom shall be forever. Solomon was the immediate fulfillment of that, but he's looking way down the road at the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You read those verses there, it becomes very clear. All these verses could not apply to Solomon. They were applying to a greater than Solomon. They were applying to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord says, God is telling us when the Son comes to this world, He'll come. What? He'll come of the family of David. He will come of the seed of Abraham. He will be a Jew, and he will be born of a woman, not from the seed of man. This will be a supernatural conception, supernatural birth. Uh, he will not have a biological father. Now Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Right? And thou shalt call his name what? Emmanuel. Read Matthew 1.23 and you'll find that the Lord's arrival fulfilled that verse. Eight virgins shall conceive. Some of your modern perversions of the Bible says young woman there. Now notice how he starts off. Hold, i show you a sign. Now you please tell me uh, uh, what kind of sign is it for a young woman to conceive and bring forth a child. Is that a sign? It happens all the time, doesn't it? But when you speak about a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son. Now, that's a sign. <laughs> that's a sign. All right? And then we come to Bethlehem, uh, to Micah 5 and 2, and the prophet said, And thou Ephratah, he says, although thou art small among those uh, in Judah, Bethlehem Ephratah says, From out of thee shall come forth unto me he that shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from Everlasting. That's a prophecy concerning the location of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? We have prophecies we put together that says that the seed of the woman shall come into this world, virgin birth. It shall be the seed of Abraham. He shall be a Jewish person. Through Abraham and his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All right, he shall be born of a virgin. He shall be born in the town of Bethlehem. And to borrow Brother Tim's text, Isaiah 9 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, all aspects of the government, all legal aspects of everything that must take place in the sight of a just and holy God will be upon the shoulders of the one under consideration. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Well, what a picture we have. What anticipation the Jewish people had of this person coming into this world. So, we come over to the New Testament. And how does does Matthew start off? The New Testament, about the life of Christ, how does it start off? Matthew 1.1. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. He's going to give you a genealogy of the Savior. We're going to have a view of the heredity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is extremely important. Now, there's two genealogies given to us of Jesus. The first one is in Matthew chapter 1, the second one is in Luke chapter 3. Now, they're both true, they're both accurate, but they're both different from this point of view. In Matthew chapter 1, he says, from Abraham to David, okay, was 14 generations. And from David to the carrying away into Babylon captivity was 14 generations. And the carrying away in Babylon captivity to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ was 14 generations. All right? So we got 42 generations under consideration. He divides Israel's history. See, it began with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He divides the history of Israel into three main categories. The period of time from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon captivity, from Babylon captivity to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, three distinct periods of time in Israel's history. Now, Hebrew letters have numerical value added to them. Okay, Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. When you take the name David... David, and apply the numerical value to his name. You come up with fourteen. And I don't know if this is why he used fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations a night, but nevertheless, it comes out to be fourteen, and it centers around David as God's son, being the son of David. In this genealogy, you have something very unusual. You have the names of four women, highly unusual in the Jewish genealogies. You got uh, Tamar, you got Rahab, you got Ruth, and you got Bathsheba, and you might say, "Well, I can see why Ruth would be in there." Well, I can too, except the fact Ruth is a Gentile, and Ruth was of of the Moabites, that normally would disqualify her out of there, but she's in the genealogy of Christ. And you look at the other three, you might wonder how they all could got in there. I'm gonna give you a one-word explanation why they're in there. It's called grace. G-R-A-C-E, grace. That's why they're in there, okay? Now, it begins with Abraham. This is his genealogy from the standpoint of his Jewish heritage, right? And this must be established for him to have a lawful right to the throne to sit on it as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. When you come to Luke chapter 3, it goes backwards. It starts with Jesus... And works backwards all the way to the Garden of Eden to Adam. The last thing it said about it, the last verse of Luke chapter 3 is Adam, the son of God. If I was going to do a family tree, I would start with me and I'd work backwards. That's the way I would work, right? But I tell you, I wouldn't get very far. I, I just wouldn't. And, and I've never having been too uh, uh, anxious or too eager to do this. I'm afraid of what I might find out. You know, I'm just assuming, I'm just go I just assume, I just be happy to assume I have a great family back here. I'm just going to assume that everybody was sterling, everybody was outstanding, and everybody was successful, and all that kind of stuff. And if I don't check into it, I don't know any different. So I'm just satisfied to leave it as it is. But everybody in the genealogy, of, whether it's Matthew one or Luke chapter three, all the males in those two genealogies were born of a woman. And they had biological fathers. But there's one that was not. We come to Matthew chapter 1. Notice how this genealogy ends in verse 16. It says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Christ, which is the Son of God. You notice how God given this genealogy of a divine inspiration, how the King James translators being led by the Spirit of God over, you know, working with them and their great work of translating the KJV, how they protected the innocence of Christ, how they protected his sinlessness and how that genealogy ends. Jacob, that's not the Jacob of the Old Testament, but Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Christ, the Son of God, all right? Now that's his heredity from a human perspective, and established him uh, as being legitimate and legal to take the throne of Israel. In seventy A.D., a man by the name of Titus, who was a general of the Roman army, under instructions of the Emperor of Rome, a Caesar, comes to Jerusalem and completely and completely and totally destroys it. Nothing is left. What does that mean? No Jewish person today has their record, can can prove what tribe they come from, a genealogy, just one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's got a record. He's got a record found in Matthew chapter 1. He's got a record found in Luke chapter 3. All other records, and this was extremely important to the Jewish people that day, because you had to have a record to prove what tribe you came from, so that you could prove what your inheritance was going to be. If you didn't have it, you didn't have it. So it's extremely important. They were all totally and completely destroyed in 70 A.D. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one. He's got it right here in Matthew 1. He's got it right here in Luke chapter 3, right? So Matthew works from Abraham to Jesus. Luke works from Jesus back to Adam, the son of God. He's showing his humanity. Even though he's a son of God, he became the son of man. And here is the heredity, here is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning that. Now, we find when the Lord was born here, he's going to have two different groups of people that's going to come to honor him. One were wise men and one were shepherds. When you see these nativity scenes... Now have both the wise men and the shepherds together that's very inaccurate. They came about 2 years apart. Shepherds came first, about 2 years later wise men show up. You also see three of those wise men, that's inaccurate. We have no idea how many wise men there were. In all likelihood there was more than 3 wise men because they caused a tremendous stir when they came into Jerusalem. So we look at Matthew chapter 2 just for a moment, this group of men here. The wise men, the expression wise men comes from a, Hebrew, a Greek word meaning magi. And the magi actually were people who practiced, they were kind of scientists and astrologers. Some of them were practiced witchcraft and stuff, but the Lord never used men like that, of course. We know that. Very little is known about these wise men. Get right down to it. Very little is known, but let's see what is known. We know they came from a distance. We know they were divinely directed by a star that appeared in the east. The Lord sent a star. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star, according to Revelation chapter 22. And so the Lord sends a supernatural star to lead them. This star is going to move and guide them from wherever they came from. And we don't know for sure where they came from, but we are confident they came from a distance. And the star led them all the way to begin with to Jerusalem. We know these were wealthy men. Whenever they get to, well, let's just don't get ahead of ourselves here a minute. They bring to Jerusalem. And there's a man by the name of Herod that's in control in Jerusalem. Herod the Great. There's a line of Herods. This is Herod the Great. Not because anything good could be said about him, that's not why he was great. The word great sometimes is used in various different applications, you see. This Herod here was a ruthless man. This Herod here was a wicked man and an evil man, and he was not a full-blooded Jew. And you're going to find in Luke chapter 2 where he's not too happy to hear about the news of this king of the Jews that's being born. He's not happy about it at all. Historical records show that he was married nine times. Historical records show that he had his own wife. One of those nine women was not so fortunate. One of those nine women and two of her brothers were slain on the charge of treason. He let nothing get in his way of his ambition and his power. That's the man who's ruling at the time of the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wise men come. Now notice what it says about them when they came to Jerusalem. They said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? They recognized that the king of the Jews had been born, but they didn't know exactly where at. So where is he, this born king of the Jews? Now, you see, Jesus didn't become a king. Jesus was born a king. And he was born a king because of a king before he was ever born. He's always been king, so he's king before he was born. He was king when he was born. He lived a king, and he reigns as a king now, as Lord of lords and king of kings. But they said, where is he that is born, who is king of the Jews? For we have come to what? Worship him. And that's what wise men have always done. These are wise men. I don't know how many men, but they're wise men. And they come from afar. They're being led supernaturally by a star that God sends to direct them they first come to Jerusalem. That's not where Christ is. But Herod inquires of the priest, uh, The, uh, the well, I'm trying to think of the word here anyway, they inquire of the people that day concerning the Old Testament Scriptures when he should be born. According to the information that he gets, he's satisfied this child is under two years of age, which he is. And so... They say he should be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the wise men on down to Bethlehem. He says, When you find him, send word back to me that I might come and worship him also. He lied. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to find where he had children slain in Bethlehem from two years old and under. He was a murderer. The Lord said concerning Satan in John 8 44 that he was a liar from the beginning and he was a murderer from the beginning, and Herod is right there in his footsteps. But the Lord revealed to the wise men not to do that. He directs the wise men out from another way. But then it says, the star reappeared." That tells me the star for a while disappeared. But as he leaves Jerusalem to go toward Bethlehem, the star reappears, and the star directs them and guides them and brings them to where the young child was. The expression "Young child is used nine times in Matthew chapter two. He's not a babe wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger when the wise men get there. He's around two years of age. He's called a young child nine times in this chapter. They come to where they find Mary and Joseph and the young child. And the Bible says they worshipped him. Not them, him. They didn't come to worship Joseph. They didn't come to worship Mary. They come to worship the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, they came and worshipped him, and they brought gifts. So I know these are wealthy men because these are gifts only wealthy people could bring. They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. The most precious metal that's ever been known to mankind is what? It's gold, isn't it? It's the king. It's over silver, it's over brass, it's over rubies and diamonds and other things. It's gold. They tell what, this, what also does this tell me, they brought the best they had. And I believe we ought to bring the best we've got. I think we ought to dress the best we can, not to be seen of men, but to honor God. If I had a meeting with the mayor, or the governor, or the president, (laughs) you think I'd show up in casual clothes? You think I'd show up in jeans? You know I wouldn't. I'd put on whatever the best looking suit I thought I had, that's what I'd put on if I'm going to meet somebody of that statue. So when I come to the house of God, I come here to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the highest of the high. I come to meet the Son of God. I come to try to give Him the best I got of my mind and my heart and my soul and my body. I need to try to get a good night's rest before I get here. So when I get here, I feel rest, rested, and not restless, but rested, <laughs> uh, rested. I have seen some men preaching, people got restless. I don't want you to get restless. I want you to get rested. All right, so I want to be rested in the house of God. I want you to be rested here so I can give you my best and you can give me my best and together we'll give him all of our best, right? That's right. So they brought the best that they had and they brought the gold, most valuable thing. And frankincense and myrrh were very valuable oils and spices used in the Old Testament. If you go to the Song of Solomon, you'll read where uh, Frankincense and Myrrh are mentioned several different times there. It was very important, uh, very valuable uh, in, in that economy of that day. So the wise men brought the very best they had and they came there to worship Him, not them. And they came a long distance and they were supernaturally directed and guided by that star that led them. And the Lord providentially informs them that they're not to go back and tell Herod where the young child was. Now let's come in here to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, you're going to find, it opens up uh, in a very important way because we're going to find where Caesar is going to issue a tax on the Roman Empire of that day. The Jewish people, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, uh, that area of the country was under the Roman Empire. So they're under the tax of the emperor. Now, Caesar had no idea about any prophecy that I've given you this morning. Caesar had no idea of anything about, he didn't know Joseph, he didn't know Mary, he didn't know uh, anything about the child she was carrying. He knew nothing about any of this. But this is not only biblical, but you can find this historically. Two so issues out of tax. Why is this important? Because Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth. The prophet Micah says he, the child will be born in Bethlehem. So how is he going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? And why is he in Bethlehem? Because of the tax of Augustus Caesar. God uses this heathen ruler providentially to move Joseph and Mary temporarily from Nazareth to Bethlehem because when they went to pay the taxes every male Jew had to go to the town of his fathers that's Bethlehem for Joseph and Mary to record his name his profession his family and his property so they're in Bethlehem and while they're in Bethlehem the time of the arrival of this child takes place and so Jesus is born In Bethlehem, of a virgin, just like Isaiah and Micah said, that he would. He's a Jewish boy, just like Genesis tells us, you know, Moses writes in Genesis and tells us that he would. He's born of a woman, not of the seed of a man, seed of a woman, just like we find the Lord saying in Genesis chapter 3, everything is fulfilled to a jot and a tittle, every T is crossed, every I is dotted. And he's born in Bethlehem. And the Bible says, Mary took him and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. Them, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Hadn't been any room in this world for the Lord Jesus Christ ever. I think that's a picture of what I'm talking about right here. There was no room for them in the inn, in a nice place where they could have this child. There was no room for them there. So they had to go to a stable. The word manger comes from a Greek word that means stall, it means a, a place where animals are kept and animals are fed. And here he's going to be wrapped in swallowing clothes, long strips of, of cloth that they wrap babies in for strength and security and warmth. That's what swallowing means. He's laid in a manger, he's laid in a trough where they put food for animals. That's our Savior. See, that's what the Lord meant when he says, the fox have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He created this world. He spoke this world into existence. You owe your existence to God. And yet while he lived here in this world, the fox had holes that he didn't have, the birds had nests he didn't have. He's wrapped in swallowing clothes, he's laid in a manger. And then the next verse says, and they're abiding in the fields nearby shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Shepherds. And an angel came to those shepherds. Two things appeared. While those shepherds were out there watching over their flocks by night, notice this, they're keeping and watching over their flocks. What shepherds do, they watch over the flock. And the angel appeared, and the glory of God appeared. And the shepherds were so afraid... I imagine you would have been too. Here you are doing what you do every single day, every single night, and all of a sudden uh, a creature from heaven comes down, and all of a sudden uh, the glory of God is shining round about you, and you're afraid. But then the angel says unto them, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy. For a new is born this day in this city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, which is good news unto all people. Now, here is a good example of the word all. Herod wasn't happy. If Herod wasn't happy, all can't mean all without exception, can it? But it's good news to all God's people, isn't it? The us of Isaiah 9, 6, as Brother Tim was bringing our attention this morning, it's good news to the us. It's good news to the all of God's children, God's family, God's elect. Good news to them. It's always been good news to me. Behold, fear not, I bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. And this is a sign. You shall find the babe wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger. That's the sign. Two signs here, right? Virgin shall conceive. She did. Second sign, she wrapped him in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger. And the shepherds come. They said, let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this sight which God hath revealed and showed unto us. Why did God show it to shepherds? All the way through the Bible, we find our relationship with God is referred to as being sheep in His pasture. Uh, go to Psalms 100, verses 3 and 4. He says, "It's not we that's made ourselves; it's not we who have made ourselves; it's God who hath made us, and not we ourselves." It is God that made us, and not we ourselves. If that doesn't sound like grace, I don't know what it does. It is God who's made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pastor. That same expression, we are His people, the sheep of His pastor, is written in the last verse of Psalm 79. Then Psalms 80 opens up like this. It says, Give ear, O shepherd, spell with a capital S, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, that leadeth Joseph like a flock, and dwelleth between the cherubims. Who else is that other than the Almighty God? Right? And then I just love Isaiah 40, verse 11. He's talking to the Lord Jesus Christ here. And he says, He shall gather his lambs with his arms, he shall carry them in his bosom, He shall gently lead those that are with young. You got the picture? He's the the shepherd. Psalms 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture, leading me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in a pathway of rights for his name's sake. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff doth comfort me. What a shepherd we've got. No wonder he revealed it to the shepherds. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. All these verses in Psalms 23, if you study the life of a shepherd, you'll find these are things that the shepherd does for the sheep. He leads them, he guides them, he anoints them, he provides for them, he maketh them. He anoints my head with oil. Thou preparest the table before me and the presence of mine enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did you know that shepherds were outcasts? That might surprise you this morning. Shepherds were outcasts. You know why? Because they stayed continuously ceremonially unclean. They had to deal uh, with birth and death and one thing and another. And so they never got to come into Jerusalem or just uh, rare times to come in there. So they were ceremonially unclean. They were considered to be outcasts. God sends this message to the outcasts. Why didn't he send it to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders? Why didn't he send it to Pilate and to Herod? Why didn't he send it to some of them? (laughs) Because he's God. And God sent it to the outcast. What would Jesus Christ be when he came to this world? John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb, spelled capital, Behold the Lamb of God. John chapter 10 says, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. Jesus came as a shepherd. Jesus came as the Lamb. How can you be both? He was. Just like he came as a king and a servant. A servant's not a king and a king's not a servant. Unless you're talking about Jesus. Jesus was king. Jesus was servant. Jesus was a lamb and Jesus was a shepherd. So, is there any wonder the first message that goes out goes to lowly shepherds watching over their flocks by night? The shepherds did what I need to do. It says they arose with haste. <laughs> they were excited. Hey, man, we, here's some good news and glad tidings of great joy. Uh, there's a babe wrapped in swollen clothes and laid in a manger, and he's in Bethlehem. And it says, um, he, He's uh, us is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The word Bethlehem means house of bread, and the bread of life is born in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Benjamin was born, which means son of my right hand. It's the place where Ruth and Boaz got married, the place of romance. It's also a place of death. First mention of Bethlehem is the death of of Jacob's wife, uh, Rachel. But I'm telling you now, we see Bethlehem as a place of life, do we not? Where the bread of life was born. And they came. And they praised Him. And they glorified Him. Notice what it says here as we bring our remarks to a conclusion. Verse 16, they came with haste. I mean, they, they didn't procrastinate. <laughs> they didn't say, well, you know, I guess we ought to go over there, but right the time being, I got a few items to take care of, a few things, uh, you know, or uh, whatever. I've heard people say that about going to church. You know, I, uh, I'll try to be there if I can get, get everything done I got to do. You know, I got this long do list or whatever. And I always tell people this, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to do it for you. It'll be there when you get back. It's not going to disappear. It'll still be there. If they act like they don't do it to get back, all of a sudden they can't find it anymore. It'll be there. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger, just like the angel said. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Notice they didn't stay quiet about it. They weren't mute about it says they made known this saying and all they that heard it wondered at those things which are told them by the shepherd. The shepherds became evangelists. <laughs> they, they temporarily became evangelists. <laughs> They're spreading the good news and the glad tidings. They found it just like the, shepherd, the angel said they would. And then Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. See, God didn't send a soldier. God didn't send a politician, thank God. (laughs) He didn't even send a reformer. He sent his son, his beloved son fulfilling all the prophecies that I've given you here this morning. And the Lord sent an announcement to it to the lowly shepherds. And two years later, he sent a star to the wise men. And they came and honored him with the very best they had. The Lord is good to us, isn't he? So when we think about the birth of Christ... There's a little bit more to it than you might just think. Most people just think about a virgin having a child. They don't think about his genealogy. They don't think about all these other things this morning. But they all come together. They're all important. They're all part of the wonderful picture of God's grace. And that's, again, what you see when God showed this to the lowly shepherds. God was displaying his marvelous and wonderful and amazing grace to mankind.